and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First time listeners, welcome. Regular listeners, always glad to have you on board. Thanks again for all the support and for supporting Counterpunch. I think it's a really important uh, publication, particularly as the media landscape changes, as we increasingly see our spaces getting smaller and smaller for critical analysis from a left perspective. Um, I highly recommend you get a subscription to the print magazine. I'm a subscriber myself. I really appreciate print publications. I really appreciate getting the magazine in the mail. The artwork from Nick Roney is always great. The columns are excellent. And then every issue we have featured featured writers on a number of topics, and this current issue is no exception, talking about child separation, talking about infiltration of the left by far-right elements, a whole lot more in that issue. So please do consider becoming a subscriber. You can also give a donation through the PayPal feature on the website or by picking up the phone and calling the Counterpunch office. So all of those options available to you. So I want to turn to uh, my guest today. I'm, I'm really excited to speak with him. I think uh, in, in perusing some of his recent work, it's, I think, some of the best out there on some critical, critical topics. Uh, it's Dave Dayan. He's on the show today to talk about, well, probably a number of subjects, but in particular to talk about ICE and uh, a recent investigative report that he did. Um, I'm very happy to have him on the show. Dave Dayan, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thank you for having me on the show. And thanks for coming on, and thanks for this great work. Um, I just want to give a quick a, a quick little bio for you. Dave, uh, you're an investigative fellow at In These Times. Uh, your, your book, which is actually quite well known, I came across it well before I looked at any of your other work, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. We might talk a little bit about that in the second part of our conversation, but today I do want to focus on your recent piece. Uh, this is from uh, the October issue of In These Times, Below the Surface of Ice, the Corporations Profiting from Immigrant Detention, a fascinating story that I think some of us probably had some inkling about and maybe knew some of the basic features of, but you go into tremendous detail, and I think it's a great public service. So let's talk about your uh, what you found in doing your research. There's so many aspects to this, from the activism work going on around this to some of the uh, details surrounding the contracts and so forth. But from a from a macro level perspective, can you give us a broad understanding of what it is you were investigating about ICE and its connection to the corporate world? Sure. So um, obviously several agencies play a role in family separation and, and, and sort of the things that have been the headlines recently from Customs and Border Protection to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is the, the office that shelters unaccompanied minors. ICE also has involvement. Uh, but what I was interested in is, in particular, the immigration apparatus as we know it today was kind of birthed in uh, 2003 with the, the uh, establishment of the Department of Homeland Security. And that is an era in Washington which is almost the height of privatization, uh, of, of K Street profiteering in the Bush era. And so I wanted to look at, you know, what, what companies are the private sector partners of immigration uh, entities and agencies like ICE. And what I found was that it, it's, it's incredibly vast. I mean, uh, according to uh, a group that I work with pretty closely on this called the Urban Justice Center, 72% of all migrants 
under ICE control are, are sleeping in, in privatized detention beds. And that either comes from the main private prison companies that have shifted into immigration enforcement over the last you know, decade or so, or uh, other uh, private sector partners who are filling that gap in, some, in one way or another. Uh, and that, that is absolutely significant. Virs virtually all of this immigration machine is happening through the private sector. And there are reasons for that. I mean, among them being that uh, you can sort of hide the uh, implications of this immigration enforcement. You can uh, uh, maintain a more opaque uh, uh, view. You, 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 can, you don't have to necessarily abide by Freedom of Information Act rules or other transparency measures that are put in with government agencies. Uh, there's plausible deniability there because you can say, oh, uh, you know, that was just the contractor. That wasn't the, the you know, that wasn't ICE doing whatever uh, parade of horrors is being, uh, you know, uh, implemented upon uh, migrants. Uh, and, and, and those are all, uh, you know, areas in which privatization might make sense for the immigration agency. The drawback is that all of a sudden you have a bunch of private sector companies who are on the hook for these policies. And it doesn't just stop at the private prison companies, but it's virtually all aspects of maintaining these agencies from their technology partners to uh, the companies that make food at these uh, detention facilities to uh, the medical care at the detention facilities to the banks who keep uh, companies uh, like the private prison operators, uh, CoreCivic and GeoGroup being the two main ones, in business. And so because you have all of these other companies involved, many of which are consumer-facing, that gives activists kind of a hook, a way to directly challenge these uh, various companies who have to maintain at some level a decent PR image uh, if they want to attract customers and say, what, why are you supporting this uh, uh, abomination happening at the border? So that's exactly what activist groups have been doing. They've been targeting uh, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase for lending to the private prison companies. They've been targeting uh, Salesforce and Amazon and other companies that have technology contracts with the immigration authorities. And so there's really sort of two sides to this story. One, just showing the vast architecture of private sector partners, and two, showing the activism that is finally getting at that relationship and trying to sort of uh, abolish ICE, let's say, in a roundabout way by, by making it so toxic that private sector companies don't want to partner with it anymore. One of the things that I thought was a really important point that you make in the piece um, that I'd like you to speak on a little bit is the way in which ICE has kind of become an avatar for a much larger system. I mean, we talk a lot about ICE. I mean, I just, you know, abolish ICE is a trending hashtag and it has been for a long time now. It's become kind of a saying among, you know, leftists and progressives. Uh, you know, we've seen the Occupy ICE and, and, and elsewhere. But you kind of argue in this piece, I think correctly, that ICE is really only one part of this broader vast machinery. Can you, can you explain that a little bit? 
Right. I mean, uh, as I said, sort of at the top of, of this conversation, there, there are a lot of agencies that play a role. If you're talking about uh, uh, immigrants who are found in the interior of the country and set for deportation, then you're talking about ICE. If you're talking about undocumented border crossings and people being captured at the border, you're talking about customs and border protection. If you're talking about unaccompanied minors or minors who are made un unaccompanied through family separation, you're talking about the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Uh, if you're talking about the deportations themselves, even though these there are uh, private you know, transportation uh, companies that work with ICE, they're kind of uh, an entity unto themselves. There's a company called ICE Air, or at least that's the... Uh, the, 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 the name that's given to a company called CSI Aviation, who does charter flights to deporting uh, migrants to their respective countries. So uh, there's, there is a large architecture here, and it's not really any one agency that's responsible for everything with regards to the immigration system. One thing that I think all of these agencies share in common is a heavy reliance on the private sector, on contractors to carry out this business. I mean, uh, the one stat that really kind of made it hit home for me is that ICE has about 41,000 uh, individuals in its custody at any given moment. Uh, it's about 41,000. They want to increase that to 52,000 by next year. But the part of the agency that carries that out, that actually houses and, uh, uh, you know, uh, imprisons and, and, and transports immigrants uh, is called enforcement and removal operations. And that only has 6,000 people, only 6,000 employees, which is not nearly enough to, to actually track and uh, transport, capture, imprison uh, uh, and detain migrants. Uh, that that's that's just a drop in the bucket. And, and it shows that the majority of this stuff is happening, even if it's under the umbrella of ICE, through private sector uh, enforcement. And uh, so so that's that's really the key here is that it uh, there's 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 really a vast architecture under the surface. Now, as a as a journalist, can you just give your perspective? I mean, does the fact that these are private companies uh, that are by and large really, uh, you know, the uh, running this architecture, or at least you know the the mechanisms of this architecture, mm -hmm. does that make it more difficult? I mean, how easy is it to get data? How easy is it to to get any kind of information out of these private entities versus, say, if they were at the very least government accountable entities? It's incredibly difficult to get data. We, we have a lot of uh, sort of anecdotal data, which everybody knows about uh, uh, what, you know, the, the, the particular abuses that are happening, whether you're talking about physical abuse or, or police reports with sexual abuse uh, happening at the border with, with these various entities. But uh, it, it can shield, you know, facilities don't necessarily have to comply with the kinds of public records requests that they would if they were purely government agencies. Uh, and that's even goes double for the parts of uh, immigration enforcement that are subcontracted by the contractor. You know, so if, if uh, a facility is being run by the geo group, which is one of the major two private prison facilities, 
uh, uh, companies that 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 uh, uh, you know runs these facilities, uh, it's up to Geo Group to find who's going to take care of the commissary, who's going to take care of the uh, provisions of food, who's going to take care of the medical. And so that contract is between Geo Group and the medical provider. So there is no government entity involved in that transaction at all, which means if there's substandard medical care going on in that facility, there's no way to get at that contract. Uh, so it is incredibly difficult uh, to, to really find uh, the, the, the details here, uh, even though there have been Supreme Court rulings saying that you know, the government has to release details of its lead contracts uh, with Geo Group, CoreCivic, or whatever other entity it's, it's contracting with in, in private prisons, uh, those subcontracts are much harder to, to, to find. It's, it's like they're a general contractor, and the, the, the subcontractor contracts are, 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 are hard to get at. So uh, because of the attention that's been paid on the border uh, to particularly in the wake of the family separation policy. We do know a fair bit about what's going on inside these facilities, but uh, a lot of it is still relatively opaque. Uh, and that does make it difficult on, on journalists and researchers who are trying to, to really understand what's happening. Yeah, of course. And, and, and if you think it's difficult to try to understand what's happening in a facility that you know about, try to understand what's happening to children once they get sent into the machinery of the, uh, you know, the foster care process. And when they get relocated, as we saw in New York City and in Chicago and elsewhere, it's one of the it's one of those things that certainly tugs at the heartstrings, but is only one part of a much broader issue regarding being able to track uh, information and people. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's that's just a whole other part of this. Of course, we saw in the last week or so uh, another uh, indication that something uh, upwards of 1,500 children uh, have been, uh, I wouldn't want to say lost through the system, but but the, the uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement has lost track of where they are and, and, and in whose home they have gone to. Uh, and that's fairly routine. We saw a similar uh, indication that that was happening, uh, you know, close to six months ago now. So, uh, once these, uh, ORR sort of leaves these off into foster care, they, they, they kind of shut the book, uh, in a, in a certain sense. And, and it becomes difficult to find out and keep up with, uh, where these children are. And, and in the case of where they've been separated from their families, it makes it doubly difficult to actually reunite them. I want to ask you a question that kind of hopefully is more of a result of your research and that has to do with an issue that I've encountered and talked about on this show a number of times. Um, there's a talking point, uh, certainly, that Trump and others have used, but even some uh, on the left have used as well, namely that uh, Obama was, you know, the deporter-in-chief, as he was known by many immigration activists during uh, the dream activism days. And um, the question I have for you is, in your research and in investigation, how different is what we're seeing now under Trump versus what we saw in terms of the deportation machine under Obama? I mean, is it just a matter of uh, degree or have we seen a transformation of this system? Well, I mean, I think what is different, while uh, certainly 
President Obama was responsible for uh, a large number of deportations. Uh, most of that was, was uh, you know, in his view, although it was questioned, uh, you know, people who had some sort of criminal record. Uh, he said he wanted to focus on, on, on felons, not families, I think was the quote. Uh, that wasn't always true. There are records from the Transnational uh, Records Access Clearinghouse at Syracuse University that showed that, you know, many of those violations were just, you know, coming into the country, uh, which, you know, is sort of a de facto uh, uh, something that, that would be present in any uh, undocumented immigrant. Uh, however, I, I think the big difference is that this 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 notion of family separation, this notion of of. Uh, when you're at the border, the, the, how, how there is a zero tolerance policy, how you would be fast tracked into a position of enforcement, uh, and immediately turned back, uh, th that has intensified. Uh, I think, I think if you talk to individuals, uh, who have been looking at this, you know, through the Obama administration up until now, there has been an intensification of, of some aspects of that at the border, but that. That is not to say that that uh, under President Obama, there wasn't a significant amount of deportations that were going on. Uh, the, the, the architecture is broadly similar. Um, the Trump administration is now trying to argue that they can indefinitely detain families together, that they won't separate them. But what they'll do is put uh, the children and the uh, adult uh, migrant in the same facility and leave them there indefinitely until their claim can be processed. Uh, that is uh, pretty novel. Uh, however, uh, you know, the Obama administration tried to work with the state of Texas uh, uh, several years ago to get uh, these large detention facilities, which are being used, uh, one in, uh, both of them are in Southwest Texas, uh, to be labeled as childcare facilities so that they could uh, allow for uh, detention uh, of a, a decent long period uh, because these facilities under a certain agreement uh, called the Flores Agreement had to be licensed in some form or another. So these, these facilities, which even during the time of Obama were called baby jails, uh, the Obama administration worked with the state of Texas to try to license them as childcare facilities. So uh, certainly there was some element under the Obama administration of trying to, uh, you know, engage in these mass detentions in these large facilities with a number of beds. Uh, right now, uh, the Trump administration is trying to sort of essentially deny the Flores decision and uh, uh, the, the settlement that was made and say that we have the ability to uh, handle and, and, and detain these migrants indefinitely. So there are changes, there's some continuity, but there are some, some you know, intensification. And as you note in your piece, uh, it only benefits these corporations like the Corrections Corporation of America, or as it's known now, I think CoreCivic and Geo Group and these other companies. It only benefits them to get more bodies in more beds because it, it allows them to generate larger contracts, more revenue, etc. So they have obviously, as they did with the for-profit prisons, they have a vested interest in not only continuing the policy, but in seeing its expansion. Yes, absolutely. That's true. And, uh, 
you know, I will say that the Trump administration essentially raised these two private prison companies almost from the dead. Uh, they were being, uh, there was a, a serious pressure on them, at least from the standpoint of their federal contracts for uh, federal prisons. Uh, that was being mustered out. Uh, the Obama administration, uh, the Justice Department under Obama said we weren't going to uh, contract with GEO or CoreCivic or any private prison operator for federal prisons anymore. And the Trump administration reversed that. Uh, it was a return on the investment uh, that the two private prison operators made in uh, Trump during the 2016 election, one of which was an illegal donation to a, uh, a, a super PAC that was involved with, uh, with Trump. So uh, there's no question that uh, these companies have been enriched by their association with Trump, their association with Jeff Sessions. Uh, there, there are uh, top aides for Jeff Sessions who work at, uh, I, I believe it's Core Civic, uh, in their in their lobbying department. So uh, there, there's a lot of relationships there, and it's paid off. Uh, Geo Group last year, along with Core Civic, earned 985 million dollars from ICE contracts. Uh, that was more than a third of what ICE spends uh, annually. On, on custody operations. So uh, a good deal of the money is going to Core Civic and, and Geo Group. And as these detention operations expand, they are the number one beneficiaries uh, of that. And so they have certainly an incentive to continue uh, that gravy train going. Absolutely. And uh, not to throw you a curveball here, but I just want to ask, you know, uh, with regard to with regard to Trump in doing this research and in doing this investigation, did you find it difficult to penetrate the Trump news cycle with this information? Because I find that where there's so many stories, I mean, yours is one of a number that are so important, that are nuanced, that involve tremendous amount of research and facts and, you know, all of that. And they just get completely lost in the shuffle of the Trump. Trump news cycle. And it's like, you know, the whole thing with child separation on the border, it seems like it was 35 years ago. I mean, it just happened. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, from my perspective as journalists, if I'm writing to chase the news cycle, I'm, I'm probably doing something wrong. I, I try to find subjects uh, that I think uh, are interesting in their own rights, whether they're about the Trump administration or about uh, something else uh, about Democrats, about corporations or whatever it is. And I try to get to the core truth of uh, that story and, and then present it to people. And, and, and the hope is that people engage with it and, and, and are enriched by it in some way or another. Uh, I, I just don't think there's any there's any anything worth uh, trying to, you know, get get in the middle of, of the story because the story is always changing anyway. Uh, what I will say is that what you bring up, that, that family separation feels like it's 35 years ago, is a real challenge for the activists who are doing this work because uh, the entire model that they have is, okay, we're going to challenge and pressure these private sector companies into breaking their relationship with ICE. And that requires some sustained engagement. And uh, as you correctly note, it's difficult to do sustained engagement 
in the era of Trump. So I, I feel like it's going to be very interesting to see if they can keep this pressure up, pressure that I did, that I lay out throughout the course of the piece. Uh, are, are they going to be able to sustain it to the level that they can get a tangible victory or two uh, and get some of these companies to break with ICE formally? Uh, that's going to be sort of the defining question as to whether this information that they're using is uh, beneficial and valuable or not. Indeed. Now, that was the other aspect of your piece that I thought was really great and, and, and certainly commendable. The coverage of the activism and the pushback against ICE and against this uh, this monstrous machine. So uh, can you give us just a, a little bit of an overview? I mean, you've kind of already touched on it, but I just wanted to get a little bit more of a sense of some of the people and some of the groups that you encountered around the country fighting back against ICE. I, you, you talked about, uh, uh, I believe the term you used was intersection activism, which I thought was really uh, a, a good description of it. So tell us a little bit about some of these groups and some of the activist work that you saw them engaging in. Well, I think the breadth of it is really the takeaway here that, uh, you know, the main families becoming together, families belong together. Coalition is made up of groups as disparate as environmentalists, uh, 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 the National Domestic Workers Alliance, uh, uh, the Center for Reproductive Rights, uh, the American Federation of Teachers, uh, a group called Moms Rising, which is like suburban moms, uh, all these groups that don't have a history of immigration activism coming together on, under this umbrella. And what are they targeting first? Generally, the banks that are funding and keeping in business the private prison companies, which for various reasons related to their finances, which is discussed in the piece, really need support from the banking industry on a day-to-day -day basis to keep their operations going. So that is one set of groups that, uh, uh, you know, a very wide net. But then there are others, uh, you know, uh, anti-war groups are going after some of the defense contractors that have contracts to house and transport migrants uh, throughout this. Um, there are these uh, groups that are technology focused, like Demand Progress, that are going after the tech industry for their contributions to technology contracts with ICE. One really interesting thing is that workers within these companies like Salesforce and Amazon are organizing at the worker level uh, to try to say that these are not products that we want to develop. These are not organizations that we want our company profiting from. Uh, that's very unique for the tech sector, which is not a unionized sector and has no real history of uh, worker-led organizing. Uh, so, so that, I think, has been a, a real uh, a real innovation here. And then you have uh, groups that are immigrant justice focused and have been doing the work for a number of years, which are expanding their operations. I, I highlight a group called Movimiento Cosecha, which means the harvest movement. Uh, and they have sort of very broadly defined complicity with ICE. Uh, any t anything from the internet service providers of ICE to uh, if Motel 6 is giving information on undocumented guests uh, to ICE. Uh, they have, have targeted that as, as part of their activism. They have a campaign called No Business with ICE. 
and that it involves a lot of direct action. They've, they've sat and, and blocked uh, and shut down uh, Amazon bookstores because of their relationship. They've marched at Northeastern University because they have a technological research contract with ICE. Uh, they have uh, been arrested in the lobby uh, of the headquarters for Comcast because Comcast provides internet access to ICE. Uh, so they have gone to the really granular level and have used, you know, uh, street power and, 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 and the, the fact that they have a lot of bodies to physically try to disrupt these companies that continue to operate in ways that they consider complicit with ICE. So uh, they are a really interesting group that is sort of building and building. And uh, that really only scratches the surface. I don't know if I have time to list all of the, the groups that are doing this kind of organizing and this kind of work. Uh, but it's been really interesting to see uh, groups that are really on the periphery of this, you would think, uh, get involved and get engaged. No doubt. And it certainly is heartening to know. I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of people who would be really quite shocked to read uh, in your piece uh, the following the following sentence. The June 30th marches, with hundreds of thousands participating in nearly 750 cities across the country, revealed the movement's popularity. Now, listeners, let me just ask you truthfully, how many of you knew that there were hundreds of thousands of people participating in 750 cities worth of protests? I think that that is uh, probably a interesting commentary on the way that our media works in the era of Trump. Yeah, I mean, I was certainly at the one in Los Angeles that was one of the largest uh, uh, families belong together marches, and uh, it was massive. Uh, it it I, I'm not sure of the exact final tally on that particular march, but uh, it was it was a very large march, and 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 it speaks to the breadth of the coalition that was around that march. Uh, and, and no, it did not get maybe the kind of media coverage that you would think, uh, a, a, an assembly of hundreds of thousands of people might get. Um, but the, the interesting part of it is that, you know, it didn't just stop with a march, you know, uh, people didn't just sort of demonstrate, show their strength, show their support and go home. There has been sustained action, uh, from June until today to try to, you know, find whatever pressure points that could be found to try to disrupt and uh, stop uh, the, the uh, complicity with this policy. And there have been, you know, some victories, and I detail a few of them in the piece. There hasn't been sort of that signature, you know, major company breaking with the immigration structure. But at a lower level, there have been several incidences of cities and counties that are breaking their ICE contracts. There are certain companies that have, uh, like Deloitte, has said that they would no longer honor their contracts with ICE. Uh, so there's, there's movement sort of at a lower level already. I think the fruits of this organizing and this activism uh, that is, uh, you know, it, it's something you can take away and build momentum off of. 
Yeah, I think that's definitely true, and it and it certainly needs to be highlighted when we do have those victories. Now, in the time that we have remaining, which is short, but um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, another one of the subjects that you have uh, done a lot of coverage on over the years, and that is uh, Wall Street, and in particular the 2008 uh, housing crash and all of the repercussions of that. And you recently had a piece uh, in, in these times, the headline was Retrospectives of the the financial crisis are leaving out the most important part, its victims. So I want to just ask you broadly, um, in looking back, uh, especially since your since your book came out a few years ago, in looking back at the crisis and, and where we are today, I, I, what would you say is are some of the more salient points that, that you would note or maybe conclusions that you draw about where we've come to in 2018? Well, uh, as you know, uh, there was this sort of uh, flurry of retrospectives uh, because Lehman Brothers collapsed uh, in September, mid-September 2008. And so if if that was the emblematic event of the financial crisis, this was the 10th anniversary that we just went through. And so a lot of people were drawing these lessons and trying to talk about, you know, where we're at today. Uh, I, I would say that if if you're going to and what I did say in this in this story is that if you're going to make a statement about, you know, where the country is at or where, uh, you know, what what we did in the financial crisis, what happened, whether it was successful or not. Uh, and, and you don't mention the nine point three million American families who, by one way or another, lost their homes as a result of the collapse of the housing bubble, then you haven't really said very much. Uh, uh, these individuals, and if you're talking about 9.3 million families, you're probably talking about you know close to 20 million people, 20 million Americans, uh, which is you know a population larger than most states in the United States. Uh, if you're not, uh, if you're leaving them out, which is frequently what happens. Uh, you can't get at the essential truth of, 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 you know, what we went through. We had this, this amazingly catastrophic event for millions and millions of people uh, on the most important financial asset of their entire lives, which was wiped away. Their, uh, their financial lives are in tatters and, and have been for the last uh, decade or so. Uh, this doesn't even count the millions more who were in foreclosure and decided to fight it and, and spent years on that project. Some of them are still fighting uh, to save their home. I talked to one of them, a woman named Terry Crowley. Uh, as you might imagine, because I wrote this book about the foreclosure crisis on a weekly basis, I get emails, contacts, Facebook uh, messages, whatever. Uh, from people who are still fighting their cases, who want uh, to know what they can do, uh, what what if I know any lawyers who might be able to help them. Uh, this has not ended. The financial crisis is not over for this subset of people. Uh, and so, you know, it just seemed to me too pat to just talk about this in terms of it being something in the past and in terms of it being something that uh, because we nursed the banks back to health or because the unemployment rate came back down from where it was that, uh, we can, we can sort of brand the recovery successful. Uh, it, it, it seems to me to just, 
avoid the the elephant in the room and that that's these millions of people who whose lives were shattered and and so my uh part of my work over the last several years has been to elevate uh the stories of those individuals and uh you know on, on the occasion of the 10th anniversary i tried to do that again Absolutely. And, and, and very well, uh, I think you, you, you did do that. But I want to just point out a couple of points to get your comment on one of the other aspects of the, of the housing uh, side of the 2008 crash that I think is often not discussed is the fact that not only did millions of people lose their homes, but many of those homes have since been bought up by hedge funds and other corporations turned into rental units, rental properties that are making money for all the people who don't need those homes, who don't live in those homes, who live in gated communities, you know, in Connecticut and in Southern California and elsewhere, these massive hedge funds and other corporations that have managed to, in some senses, transform the housing market itself. I mean, if you're looking in real estate in Southern California, it's mind-boggling, or in Northern California or around New York City. I mean, it's mind-boggling. So it's not only that people have lost their homes, it's that regular people in many ways have gotten shut out of the housing market. Yeah, that's definitely an aspect of it. Uh, when you have companies like Blackstone buying up uh, 80,000 properties, uh, Blackstone is this giant private equity firm on Wall Street. Uh, they are America's largest landlord now, uh, largely through purchases made after the foreclosure crisis of distressed homes uh, through their arm called Invitation Homes. Uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of claims that the they are substandard that they jack up rents that they don't do repairs uh and this is reality now for for a lot of families is that wall street is their landlord uh some of them are the same families that lost their homes only to come back to rent from you know the same class of people that perpetrated the financial crisis which led to the loss of their home in the first place so um yeah it's a perverse outcome of the financial crisis is you have this this sort of single-family rental uh, explosion. Uh, another irony of that is that uh, securities have been sold, bonds have been sold based on the rental revenue, much like mortgage-backed securities were sold during the crisis based on the mortgage revenue. Uh, so you have a mirroring there as well. Uh, of rental backed securities, which is just, you know, if we see another downturn, we might see similar uh, drops in the valuations of those securities. And, and that could spread across the financial system. It just seems like we never learn uh, about these things and, 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 and how to avoid them. Uh, so yes, I, I, I would agree to an extent. I mean, it's not as widespread as say, uh, the the you know number of subprime mortgages that were issued in 2005 and 2006, uh, but it's a part of the picture, uh, and you combine that with uh, you know the affordable housing crisis more generally that we're seeing in in pockets of the country, particularly on the coasts, as you alluded to, uh, and it 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 comes up to a, a really dispiriting picture for the people who were most powerfully affected by the financial crisis. You know, you talk about these, these uh, various uh, emblems of recovery, these statistics in aggregate, and you don't get at the fact that the cost of living has risen for certain groups of people 
and that their quality of their jobs has not come back to a level where it was 10 years ago. And uh, they're essentially in worse financial shape than they were. Uh, and, and, and that's something we shouldn't forget either. No doubt about it. And one other aspect of it, I think, that also doesn't get enough attention or, or maybe, you know, it gets some but not enough would be um, the fact that you have an entire group, as you mentioned, 20 million some people who lost their homes. And then you have tens of millions more who have come of age post 2008 for whom buying a home is almost an impossibility for so many reasons, including student debt and other things. So it's it's simultaneously a shutting out of the people who previously had homes, and it's also a shutting out of those future homeowners. Right. And I would add to that that the number one way in American society that wealth is built is through the purchase of a home. So when you deny that or when you create a situation where you had so many people who have horror stories who suffered through the purchase of a home at at a particular moment in time that uh, people who knew them or, or, or those individuals themselves become gun shy at being homeowners, uh, then they are just sort of denied access to this core wealth building opportunity. And that really damages their, their financial prospects for life. Uh, you add that to what you just mentioned about student debt and people graduating into a very bad job market and what that did to stunt their financial growth. Uh, you know, we, we all know the, the stories about millennials living in the basements of their parents, uh, unable to uh, acquire a home or a car or, uh, you know, all of these avatars of, of, of wealth building. And that permanently really in, in, in some ways stunts the economy. Uh, if you don't have these sort of durable goods purchases like homes or cars from uh, a, an entire generation, uh, it's it's pretty well known that the millennial generation made out the worst in the wake of the financial crisis just by the circumstances that are completely beyond their control of being born at the wrong time. And so all of this plays into the frustrations, I think, uh, justifiable frustrations that I think people have with this economy, the idea that bankers got bailouts and nursed back to health and, and, and felt no accountability for perpetrating this terrible crisis, and others who were innocent bystanders to the crisis, who were just born at the wrong time or bought a house at the wrong time or, or what have you, uh, continue to suffer the consequences. That, uh, I think, is the wallpaper for our political situation right now in many ways, uh, that, that uh, the, 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 the kind of frustration and building anger, this belief that the, the game is rigged for powerful interests uh, is, is reinforced by the experience of the last 10 years. Absolutely. And just the other point on that, too, is that the the one piece of, I would argue, relatively weak and, and, and mostly uh, ineffectual legislation, Dodd-Frank, which, to, which did put some stopgap measures in place, that itself has been gutted. So even the minor legislative, uh, you know, victory, as it were, in the wake of 2008, even that's really not in play. And all of those banks that committed massive fraud, Wells Fargo and Bank 
Bank of America, the robo-signing scandal, all of those things have all gotten swept under the rug. All those banks have gotten the slap, the proverbial slap on the wrist with the with fines and so forth, and they're all operating in exactly the same way, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about it this way, we had the Great Depression, uh, and in the wake of the Great Depression, we had New Deal reforms on banking that were largely structural. Uh, they created... Uh, for the first time, a Securities and Exchange Commission. They created deposit insurance. They uh, uh, affected a separation between investment and commercial banking. And those reforms lasted essentially for 50 years uh, until they started to get chipped away at through the Reagan administration uh, and even before a little bit um, uh, uh, until the point uh, at which the deregulation sort of took sway and we had the financial crisis of, of 2008. Uh, so it was 50 years, the, the life cycle, the pendulum swing between more regulation and deregulation and then crisis and then swings back, uh, which is a familiar cycle that we've seen in practically every financial crisis in, in global history. There was a, a very good paper on this that uh, shows that there's, there's a very uh, defined characteristic of there's a crisis, we work to regulate and then the pendulum swings back as everybody forgets. There's more deregulation and then there's another crisis. So that was a 50 year cycle uh, after the depression. Now we're 10 years out from the financial crisis and that cycle is already swung uh, in the opposite direction. So it, it's it's this massive shrinking of time really uh, between the the having the crisis, regulation, and then deregulate. I mean, one of the two largest, uh, most important bills, I would say, that uh, the the Republican Congress has signed uh, and advanced. Out, you know, you have the tax cuts, and then the other thing is the the rollback of Dodd Frank. Key key components of Dodd Frank, not the whole bill, but uh, various key components, including the one. Uh, that says that if you are a bank making, uh, if you have $50 billion or more in assets, uh, we won't give strict regulations on you like we imposed after Dodd-Frank. And you have to make a, a $250 billion or more in assets in order to get that enhanced regulatory uh, scrutiny. And so this affects 25 of the largest 38 banks in the country, banks who may not be on the order of J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo, but are big enough to have a stadium named after them. Right. The, the stadium banks is what we called them in our piece on this. And uh, and by the way, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, they all got perks in that Dodd-Frank rollback bill as well. So, yeah, you've already seen the pendulum swing five times as quickly as you did after the New Deal. And so that should really worry folks that uh, we don't know exactly what the next financial crisis is going to look like, but we have some historical sense of what happens right before a financial crisis. And what happens is that we start deregulating the financial system. And that's what we're doing right now. So it's not a stretch to say that we're seeing the seeds being planted right now for the next financial crisis. 
Absolutely. And and maybe previously it was subprime mortgages and this time it might be corporate bonds or it might be debt right. or it might be internet foreign currencies or whatever it is. Absolutely. Some 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 trigger uh, is likely to come and anybody paying attention to financial economic headlines around the world knows that, well, you could pick from a, a, a wide array of possible triggers for the next crisis. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you targeted some of them right there, uh, whether you're talking about the Emerging markets crisis, places like Turkey and Argentina are already feeling the effects of that. Uh, corporate bonds, uh, things called leveraged loans. Uh, a lot of uh, corporations have been borrowing at large uh, quantities. And uh, if those loans have to come in because interest rates rise, uh, it could create a fire sale. Uh, that, that market isn't quite as large as the subprime market. But if you put a few of these things together, you could get up to a level uh, of, of what the subprime mortgage market was in terms of its size. And if you do, then you, you could have uh, a similar style of event, certainly one that would cause a recession, maybe not something on the order of what we saw in 2008, but it's hard to know uh, because we fundamentally didn't change the structure of the financial system. That system remains very interconnected uh, if a problem happens in one corner of it, it can flow out to other parts of the system. There isn't as much uh, short-term lending among banks. Uh, this was a part of the credit markets that really seized up in 2008. Uh, however, if uh, certain loans fail in one, and, and, and that takes down one part uh, of the financial system, a large bank or a, a private equity firm that is getting into the realm of, of, of lending, uh, that that could have cascading effects. There's no reason why it couldn't. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I, I think you're absolutely right to pinpoint uh, the areas that you did. And uh, th those are the, the, the spots we have to watch for, even though we don't know exactly where the next crisis is going to come from. No doubt about it. Well, we're out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you, Dave Dayen, for, for, for coming on the show and all for all of your work. The book, I highly recommend it for everyone. Uh, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. Very, very important book. Uh, you can follow Dave's work on In These Times, The Intercept, and a bunch of other places as well. And follow him on Twitter at ddayen. That's D-D-A-Y-E-N. Dave, thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio today. Really appreciate it. All right. Great, Eric. Thanks. Thank you as well, listeners, as always, and we'll chat again real soon.